You are now tuned in to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? This is Superlative, a podcast about watches, the people behind them, and the worlds that inspire them. Spending time with the Blog to Watch community and the stories we discover. Let's get started. Hey everyone, this is Ariel Adams with the Superlative Podcast. Today I am joined by the CEO of Zenith Watches, Mr. Julian Tornari. Hey, Julian. Hi, Ariel. How are you? I'm fantastic. So you've just finished your part of 2021's LVMH Watch Week, where Zenith got to introduce a bunch of new watches and things like that. You must be exhausted from interviews. Uh, you know, we are used to that and I, we enjoy it. It's a very good part of the job. So yes, we're running around between 17 to 20 interviews per day in a usually 20-minute session. So it's quite intense, but it's great. Really exciting to speak out about all our products. So it's very nice. I, I love it. I was thinking about it recently because this conversation, I really wanted to focus on not just you and not just Zenith, but the position you have, which is an interesting job, which is to run a traditional watch co uh, company You know, in today's contemporary world. And I thought about sort of other CEOs like in luxury spaces, like maybe in jewelry and furniture. Cars is a little bit of an exception, but they don't really give that much interviews out. I'd say, you know, given the magnitude of watches, which is, you know, a luxury item, you guys, you guys find a lot of time to speak to press. Um, do you think that, do you think that's sort of unique to the watch industry or is that just common everywhere? I think it's getting more and more common because people want to, you know, when you buy luxury, you don't really buy uh, a product that you need, you buy something that's going to please you, you, you buy the brand, you buy the emotion around the brand. And usually people want to know who's behind the brand, you know, and that's, that's part of the, of, of the whole thing, I think. So it's, uh, it's, of course, the brand is here. It's always going to be here when we are only here for uh, a few years. Uh, but it's still, it's important to understand, um, who is at the head of the brand. So I think more and more people are willing to, uh, to, to explain that, yeah, and to talk about that, for sure, yeah. So let's give a little context for people that don't know the luxury landscape. So Zenith is a brand which is quite old. Its history goes back to the 19th century, and today it's owned by the LVMH luxury group that owns popular brands such as Louis Vuitton, um, some champagne labels. Um, I mean, yeah. LVMH itself is Louis Vuitton, Moet, Hennessy. Uh, that's the name. And in terms of watch brands, it owns Tag Heuer, Hublot, Zenith, um, of course, it also owns Bulgari that makes watches and other things like that. So yeah. it's very heavily diversified in luxury watches between between the brands. It's, it's really big names. And, you know, Zenith is interesting because, you know, Zenith is a popular name. But back in the day, it was actually related to the electronics company, wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. In the U.S., it was uh, the, most of the people know it as a name from the Zenith uh, radio corporation and uh, that's one of the reason why we couldn't really be in the u.s market until 2002 and that's only since that year that we came back and, and started to really uh, uh, take our share of the market as a, as a watch company with this name but yes you are totally right we were more known in the u.s and still for people in there i would say upper 40s 50s they think about the tv sets yeah Oh, I remember when I was a kid, there being, yeah, Zenith TVs and a lot of electronics. Yeah. And I was in my garage and I had this old piece of furniture uh, that was my grandfather's and inside of it was a built-in <laughs> stereo and it was the Zenith 
stereo. So I have this really cool, like Zenith, old Zenith logo where the Z kind of looked like a, you know, like a lightning bolt and stuff like that. Um, how did it become today just a mechanical watch company? Where, how did that happen exactly? Well, it's a, it's a long time ago. It's always been a, a watch brand, but I would say um, in the US, we came back in 2002 and we started to really uh, talk about the brand and what's behind the brand because the brand is 155 years old. So it's, uh, we have the traditional side of it, but we are one of those brands that has a long history, super authentic because we, we are one of the few brands that can say that 100% of our watches, they have a Zenith movement. So we have this kind of traditional, respectful, manufacturer side. Uh, but we are very much into 21st century and contemporary world because we make watches of today. And that's super important as a balance in the watch industry. So in the US, when we came back with that kind of speech explaining where we come from and the history we have, uh, people are very, very um, appreciative of this. So the, we, are, we are gaining a market share every year in a great way in the US. A really important year for Zenith was 1969, which just in pop culture was a yeah. pretty famous year for a lot of things happen, yeah. happening. And I'll just sort of let you give the short story. What did Zenith do in 1969? Uh, 1969 was an incredible year because um, our uh, watchmakers, uh, engineers uh, started to work, I would say, in the early 60s, probably 62, 63, on uh, how they can make a fully integrated, automatic, high-frequency chronograph movement. And that was something totally crazy. So you have a few groups of companies that were in the race to be uh, the first one to achieve such, uh, such an amazing uh, movement development. And Zenith won the race. In 1969, that team managed to launch what we call the El Primero, which means the first in Spanish, and uh, uh, and they, they kind of really won the race and they became very famous with this uh, legendary movement. What's very interesting with America is that a few years after uh, the El Primero, uh, the company uh, got bought by Zenith Radio Corporation we just talked about. And at that time, when the U.S. new management came to Switzerland, it was the boom of the quartz watchers coming from Japan. And uh, at that time, um, uh, basically everybody said, okay, quartz is the future. Let's forget mechanical watches. And they wanted to get rid of all the El Primero and all this work that had been done over the last decade. And, uh, and, and thank God we have um, uh, someone very important in our history, Mr. Charles Vermeau, who didn't listen to his bosses, his new U.S. bosses, and he started to hide every single part, components, uh, drawings, plans, tools uh, that we needed to, to make this El Primero. He started to hide those in the attic of the company in a hidden place. He built a brick wall and the treasure was hidden for 10 years. Incredible story. And only years after when the company was resold, when quartz watches were not, uh, um, were not the trend anymore, mechanical watches came back. New owners said, Jesus, we used to have the best chronograph movement in the world. How come we can get it back? And we went, they went, I wasn't there, but they went to uh, uh, find Mr. Vermo out of his uh, retirement. He came, he broke the brick wall, and he showed everyone that he preserved this incredible El Primero and this fantastic treasure. So it's a great story because now when story. we tell the story in the U.S., it's, it's really related to, to a, an amazing period, yeah. 
And I've been to that attic. You know, I think that's actually one of the coolest places mm. in any watch manufacturer I've been is up in the upstairs part of the Zenith manufacturer in Switzerland. And it's um it's a real piece of history. It's such a cool story. And today the El Primero is still so relevant. It's such a great mechanical watch movement. It's something you can wear every single day. And again, I'm just sort of adding a little bit of context, Julian. I hope you don't mind because yeah. I anticipate oh, some of the people listening when they hear fully integrated automatic high-frequency movement, they're like, they don't know what that means. Yeah. Um, high-frequency <laughs> was something that allowed watches to be more accurate over time. And so it was sort of, um, I don't know, like a 20% increase versus the the next most accurate thing. And today, because a lot of people like mechanical watches, a five hertz versus a four hertz movement is considered yeah. that much better of a tool. You know, it's like an engine that's got some, you know, nice refinement to it that just sort of operates better. And an integrated chronograph means that it has a stopwatch mechanism built into the watch, but it's it's actually built into the movement as opposed to kind of like a sandwich with a piece on top. And this allows it to be, again, more useful over time, more reliable, just a, a better experience. And the El Primero has been featured in so many watches, including the famous Rolex Daytona for a while until Rolex just yeah. finally started making their own chronograph movements. And, and actually this year, Ironically, you sort of came out with kind of a funny homage to the Daytona, which is very attractive. And of course, a lot of people are thinking, oh, it's like the it's like the modern Daytona, but with the El Primero. Is that sort of what you were thinking when you guys were designing uh, the Chronomaster Sport? Because it's such a great watch. It's so it's so desirable today. Yes, of course. But no, it, it wasn't really what we wanted to do, because if you look at the details of watches that were launched between 1965 and 1985, we had quite a few that were really looking exactly like the one we're launching now. So it's more of a re-edition of what Zenit made in the, in the 70s and 80s, mostly, I would say. Uh, and you know, of course, Rolex launched their Daytona in those years. We were supplying our uh, El Primero movement for the Daytonas for close to 12 years. So all these watches were born at the same time. Uh, and, and you know... Um, uh, let's not forget that during those years, Daytona was not at all the 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 the, the legend and the uh, the bestsellers that they have now. No. Actually, at the very beginning of the Daytona generations, it, it wasn't really a hot product. It became very hot in the future. So we simply were coming from the same period of time with a common, uh, um, I would say, a background together on on quite a few things. Not only the movement, but some bracelet development, some different things they had been worked on together. So. We, we're just coming from those years. And, and of course, we had very similar watch. If you have a look, and I advise you to have a look at the Deluca, Deluca uh, limited edition um, uh, made uh, after the name of a re Italian retailer in those years. Uh, we have the same bracelet, same buckle. So it's really the heritage yeah. of those years. Yes, it's a round, sporty watch. So it's in the same category. Absolutely. I mean, I think the idea is that you did such a good job of adding something to a popular look, meaning there's some, there's yeah. a desire out there and you gave it this sort of Zenith twist and everyone's like, wow, that's very, very nice. And the thing is what I like about them is they don't really replace any of the other El Primero watches. It's sort of its own collection and you can enjoy both and, and feel like you have two very different watches. And I think that's really the, the hard thing to do is to have all these watches with El Primero movements that make them feel fundamentally different from one another. It's, it's a challenge, isn't it? 
Absolutely. That's the challenge. And we need, uh, our job is to, you know, to go back into our history, to look at the roots and where we come from, to find the right details and then to bring something new. And that's exactly what we did. That watch is actually born out of three historical models that we put on the tray uh, two and a half years ago with my friend uh, Romain, who is our head of product. We put the three watches on the tray. We look at them. We say, okay, what do we take from that? What do we take from that? And what do we add? to bring this contemporary dimension. And, and you know, some of your colleagues from the press in different parts of the world, many had the same comment. They say, you know, you are the only brand that could produce and make such a watch and launch such a watch because you have the legitimacy. You were born in the same years. You shared your movement with Rolex during all those years. So there is a common background in a way. And, 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 and we are the one to do that. We are known as the king of the chronographs. And uh, that's very important that we, we came back with this, uh, this great watch, as you said, which is a great complement to the other El Primero uh, chronomaster that we have. Yeah. Let me ask you a question, because I think that there's something that Zenith does well that a lot of brands struggle with. And you mentioned this earlier in the conversation that really is about sort of looking in the past and looking forward at the same time. Zenith, of course, does a good job of maintain its, maintaining its heritage and producing a lot of new watches that have the essence of the old watches. We know this. But then there's also the side of, of Zenith, which has been around for a while now, where you're trying to invent new designs, you're trying to create relevant watches that, that focus on pop culture today, today's technology, today's aesthetics. How does a brand do that in an environment which is so obsessed with tradition? You see so many brands that just can't simply invent new history for themselves. What is it about Zenith that allows you to do that? Uh, it's a, thank you for asking. I love this question because it's exactly where we stand um, as a brand for Zenith. And, and it's, it's right in line with my, my own beliefs about what watchmaking industry should be. You know, I'm Swiss myself, so I can say that. But Swiss watch industry tend to always be very traditional. And you often had like two categories. Watch brands with a long history uh, that tend to be sometimes stuck in their own past. They never really dare to, 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 to create new things, to provoke a bit the industry, you know, to push the boundaries. They were only repeating the past. And there is a big risk, especially with new generation, to basically uh, become a museum brand or even a museum industry. And then you had brands coming from a white sheet of paper, like less than 10, 20, 30 years of history. So basically, they can do whatever they want. They can be creative, bring new materials, uh, new designs and you know, they don't have any past, so it's quite easy to, to do whatever they want. And I always believed that it's wrong because uh, you should never oppose the past to the future. You should never oppose tradition to innovation because uh, the innovation of today uh, might become the tradition and the icon of tomorrow. And uh, one of the big, big, big moments of my uh, three and a half years at Zenith was two years ago when we celebrated the 50th anniversary of the El Primero. I realized that 50 years is a long time and not that long. So I managed to call and contact the gentleman who made the El Primero in the 60s. The, 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 they were all in the 80s, the youngest born in 45, the oldest born in 1939. Wow. And we got to have lunch together. And these gentlemen, they told me a lot of things. But one thing I will never forget, because we often believe that people at that age, they might be conservative, they might be referring to the past being better than today's world. And they told me exactly the opposite. They said, Julian, it's great you give tribute to what we did. It's fantastic. But don't forget 
to continue to create, to invent, to bring new things, because this is exactly the spirit of the brand. And this is exactly what we did in the 60s with the El Primero, when nobody was believing we could do such a, a movement. So I, I love that because it's perfectly in line with our time to reach your star philosophy, to really go for your star, push the limit, push the boundaries. And it was basically confirmed by these gentlemen who created the most important uh, uh, chronograph movement in the world. So I, you are totally right. It's a question of balance between the, what you have done over the last years and decades and centuries sometimes, and what you are planning to prepare the brand for the future. It kind of sounds like you at the, at the top position actually have to tell everyone, hey, everyone, I actually want something new. In addition to all this great heritage, bring me something new. Impress me. I want to build new yeah. stuff. Without someone at the helm asking for that, maybe no one delivers it. You are totally, totally right. Because last year, in our end of the year uh, review that we have with all the employees, I told every single member of the executive committee, all the people reporting to me, I told them, whatever field you are working in, you have to bring me five different initiatives that are really innovative, really new. Of course, it seems easier for marketing and product than for finance, but any, anyway, they had to bring five innovative ways because I think this is the only way to keep the mindset, to keep the spirit the way we inherited it from, from, from those years. So it's, that's exactly it. It's in the DNA of the brand and we are not a brand to repeat the past. That's sure. So what's your strategy when it comes to getting new things funded? I think one of the challenges anytime you have a corporate parent is you have to say to somebody, hey, you got to spend money to make money. And with watches, not only are new mechanisms and new materials very, very expensive, but they're also time consuming, not only to build and develop and manufacture, but oftentimes to get popular in the market. What are the right words to say to a parent company that the investment is worth it and it's worth waiting for something to get popular or to be done? Uh, you know, again, you have a few things. Uh, one very important because, of course, I talk about future, creation, etc., innovation. But you need always to keep in mind where you come from and who you are. And this is very important. As long as you stay within this uh, uh, territory that you belong to, you are allowed to create and innovate a lot. And, uh, you know, one of the best ways to, um, to do it is, is often to, um, to go to... You can do it with anything. When you go back to the past, uh, if you think about... Uh, 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 what people are buying when they buy a luxury brand, they buy brand equity. They want the equity of the brand. That's the most important. And that's the reason why today, if you look at the auction business, Zenith has been the brand to really go up and up and up over the last two years because uh, collectors and watch aficionados, they really feel that the brand is, um, is building a very strong um, equity. Uh, you know, we launched the Zenith Icons program, which is very important to us. Uh, where we basically restore uh, certified guarantee uh, uh, watches from the 60s, 70s and sell them uh, through our network. This is a great way to show that between the past and the future, it's always connected. And, and, and in the long term, you, you reinforce the brand equity. And that's what the parent company is looking for. They're not looking for um, a, a screen of smoke, you know, and make a big firework for six months. And then it goes down. They are looking for long-term brand equity. You mentioned LVMH and, and their brand portfolio. Uh, Mr. Arnaud is very clear on that. He wants entrepreneurship, taking risk, moving forward with your brand. You have the responsibilities of it. But you also 
uh, need to build it for the long term. It's never short term. So that's something which is which is great, which is really great. How does that compare to your last job, which is at Vacheron, owned by a different corporate group, the the Richemont Group? Were there similar philosophies, or were these companies run very differently? Um, I would say Richemont probably tend to be. Um, more decentralized and it became more centralized now over the last uh, couple of years uh, when LVMH is, is very, very brand by brand uh, to the extreme. I mean, today, if I want to launch a new product, if you, um, Ariel, you tell me you should do this watch in yellow and I believe it's a great idea and I want to make it in yellow, I'm going to make it in yellow tomorrow. I don't need to go through 10 times, uh, 10 level of a hierarchy or reporting or validation. You know, I can do it. If I want to add a new uh, visual in my uh, ad campaign, no problem. I can do it. Uh, in in, in Richemont, it's, it's a lot more about validation processes. Uh, and I believe that what, what Mr. Arnaud wants for his brands and his CEOs is that they need to take risks. They need to be entrepreneurs because he's the best example of a, of a, of a serial entrepreneurs. And he's been successful like that. So he knows the spirit so well from the very beginning of his, of his career. That and he's he wants, done it with uh, his children too, right? Exactly. That's exactly. But we have, we are responsible. Then, of course, you have to assume your responsibilities, whether it goes right or whether it goes wrong. But that, that's what I'm telling my people also. I said, you know, you are in charge of marketing. You are in charge of sales. You have a big job. You are responsible from A to Z, from successes and failure. You have to take both sides. If you don't, if you validate all the way to the top, nobody is then responsible and you don't create this entrepreneurship energy. So I think it's, it's, this is a big difference is that LVMH has this really in its DNA. Yeah. I'm going to guess that you learned the wisdom that you just said when you had to have sales territories and you were responsible for developing that territory. It was sort of sink or swim. It was all on you. Is that true that when you have that type of responsibility, you sort of really learn what it's like to have to take risks and do things on your own initiative? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the best learning for me was in 2004, when I went to, um, to the U.S., I moved with my wife. I was, we were barely married and we went to the U.S. and I was 32 years old and I had to, uh, uh, fix basically a lot of issues that we had with the brand at that time with Vacheron at that time in the U.S. and, and get the brand back on track. And it took me a quite a while. It was very, very challenging. And I was the one in charge, you know, and sometimes this is where I learned that sometimes you have to say no to headquarters. And I had to get into fights because from a Geneva office, sometimes you think that it's good if you want to attract uh, uh, the press and the VIPs in an event, you have to do a certain things. And you're like, no, no, no. In the US, it doesn't work like that. This is not going to attract anyone. Believe me, I'm here. I might not be American, but I live surrounded by American citizens. So I, I know more than you about that. And you have to fight. You have to fight for your markets. You have to fight for your brand. And this is, this is where you learn because at HQ sometimes, and I'm still telling my colleagues sometimes the same um, thing today, uh, we don't know everything. We are here in our Swiss mountains. We make beautiful watches, but let's listen to the people from the markets, people from the field, because they are the one facing the retailers, they are the ones facing the end clients in their respective markets. And that's, that's something you really learn when you have this, uh, when you moved and you, you lived abroad for quite a few years. Yeah. You know, you're a very practical guy. And the advice you're giving to, you know, the people at home in Switzerland about 
listening to the markets because things are different there. It's very practical advice. What is it about that advice that is difficult for the people at home to tell? Because we hear the situation a lot. Someone goes to the market, recognizes that the U.S., for example, very different than Geneva, very different than Switzerland, very different in yeah. Europe, reports back to HQ, but there's still resistance. And I've always wondered, culturally, why is that exactly? You know, because we are, we all have different cultural uh, glasses, and uh, uh, and that's often been the case in, in the U.S. I remember during those, those years, um, th there's been some... Uh, you know, a little bit of arrogance sometimes by Europe. I have to say, uh, Europe believed that they invented luxury, that they have the right taste for watches, for shoes, for clothes. And they came to many places in the world, not only the U.S., saying, okay, we are Europe, we know about luxury. And I, I've always felt very um, embarrassed about that. I think it's it's so wrong. And uh, and the, when you go to a new country, you have to adapt to the culture. It's not, it's not the country adapting to you. I mean, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm importing Swiss watches when I'm based in New York to sell a little part of Switzerland, but I need to adapt to what American people are, are looking for. And this is something that sometimes people forget, you know, with this kind of a country of origin effect. They think, wait, Swiss, Swiss made, Swiss watches, they are the best. We, we know what you want. Uh, not always. I would go with a lot more humility and uh, I would... I would first try to understand the market, listen, listen to the people there, listen to the market. Don't think that because you're Swiss, you know more than anyone about watches or because you are uh, from Paris, you know uh, a lot more about fashion than anyone in the world. I think it's a bit um, narrow-minded. And when again, when you move abroad, when you meet people from different culture, you tend to open up your mind and, and think a little bit wider. And I think that's that's part of the great, great learning that you, you, you experience when you live abroad. I'll tell you what I've noticed and tell me if you agree with me or not. You know, a big part of luxury, of course, is what we call the, the buying experience. And yeah. what I found interesting is that throughout the world, different people want a different experience when it comes to buying a watch. Yeah. Somebody wants this experience of getting dressed up, going to high street, taking their sweet time, making a day of it walking to the cafe with their shopping bag, enjoying it. This is not a matter of right or wrong. It's just a matter of something which is, uh, you know, a little bit different and distinctive. Whereas in the yeah. United States, maybe the same type of person buying the same type of watch doesn't want to do that. For them, the luxury is wearing the watch to the club um, or, you know, like a, like a country club or something like that. So they want to buy it conveniently have it shipped to their house and rather than the buying experience they're they're excited about the first wearing experience and even though they're buying the same product their expectations are so so different and it would be impossible for people in switzerland to understand the u.s experience and vice versa this this is exactly it you know this is exactly it and uh, and and i remember during those years a lot of europeans when they got to the u.s and they saw uh, the tourno tourno store of those years which was <laughs> right, basically right. the best the, the great years of Turno, the golden years of Turno, it was such a big name, so popular. And American citizens, they feel very comfortable to shop at Turno. It was great for them. You had everything you needed. Uh, but for us, for European, when you get there, you think, oh, wow, it looks a bit like a supermarket for watches. We don't like it. There is no, <laughs> there is no luxurious experience, luxurious feel. And I remember that. I remember people telling me this. And I first, I probably had the first impression, but again, then it's a question of humility of saying, Osley, this is the way they like to buy. At the end of the day, we want to please our clients. We want them to buy watches. 
let's go the way they want. And maybe they don't want the luxurious uh, Swiss type of experience with a glass of champagne, blah, blah, blah. They just want to go to Tourneau and, and, and meet the people there. And I think it's, um, it's, it's again, a question of adapting to the country and, and, and going for, for what the clients want. It's like e-commerce. Uh, Swiss watch industry for a long time was saying that nobody's going to buy watches online. You need to touch the product. You need to be, you know, to, to have this kind of experience, in-store experience that I just referred to. And we see now with the, 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 the coronavirus and the uh, lockdown situation that we've had, that actually we all sold quite a well uh, online. So we need, to, we need to keep it open, yeah. No, I, I appreciate you saying that and and hearing that the the industry is finally learning about the internet. I mean, you know me, I I basically am the digital native, as they say. And in 2007, yeah. when I started all this, I noticed this enormous amount of activity, of people online already uh, buying and selling watches. And so when I first started mingling with the watch industry a few years later, seriously, and they expressed, uh, you know, almost like they distrust when I said that it was going on. I'm like... I don't know why you're all against the internet. Do you have any idea how much money is moving on the internet when yeah. it comes to watches? Like tons. And your retailers are getting less and less sales each year in the traditional way. I don't know why you keep denying this. It's actually happening right now. It was the weirdest thing to me. Um, and then fortunately, there was, again, managers like yourself, who I think had the benefit of just living in other places enough to recognize that there was a wall, an information wall that just wasn't getting back home, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now this is, you know, I'm still telling a lot of young people in my industry now, uh, because I'm, 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 uh, I'm here for quite a while. And I tell them my best experience has been to live in the U S for five years and to live in, in Asia for seven years, because as a Swiss guy, I mean, Switzerland is so small and, uh, you, you really open up your mind and, uh, and, and, and that's the big, the best learning. And, and, and honestly, even my kids that were born in different countries, one in the U.S., one in Switzerland, one in Hong Kong, I mean, they are citizens oh, wow. of the world more than That's anyone. Cool. That's really cool. Yeah, I like that. I like that. But uh, I'm not going to any other continent now, so I stick to free. <laughs> so let's talk about Hong Kong for a moment because you lived there for a while. I've been there a bunch of yeah. times. This, you know, if you're in the watch industry, this this was, hopefully still is, a magical place. There's no other place in the world that you can go to where there's just watches, watches, watches everywhere from signs everywhere. to stores. I mean, it's it's like the Disneyland for watches. And now with what will inevitably be changes, the Hong Kong that we knew won't be there anymore. It might still be a Mecca for watches, but there's something about the local character that just never will be the same. I, I think you know what I mean. Um, I, what do you, I know exactly. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I was just, I was just, I wanted to know your thoughts on, you know, w- what you think are going to be some of the highlights of Hong Kong in the next years. Is it still going to be an important market? And then maybe what are some of the things you miss that we'll never see again? Hello, you are right. And I consider myself very lucky to um, have been moving to Hong Kong in 2011 because I got to know the golden years, the amazing years of this Hong Kong, as you described very well, yeah. which was probably the worldwide uh, hub for watches. And we have never seen so many watch shops and watches uh, uh, by, by, by square foot. Uh, and uh, and that, was, that was quite amazing. But it was also connected to another thing that I'm lucky to have known is the, the, the first generation of Chinese buyers, because the first generation of Chinese getting access to wealth, to luxury, to the Western world, 
and, uh, and, and, and more than anything, going to Hong Kong as a nearby place where you could speak the language, you could, you like the food, you know the people. So it was much easier for them to start to taste the Western world, the Western world, sorry, in Hong Kong. It was the best place. That's why it became a huge hub. That's why Hong Kong benefited from such a boom over the last uh, uh, decades. And, and, and of course, since uh, 2014 and uh, the Umbrella Revolution uh, in Hong Kong, yeah. uh, it's been changing step by step and it's not going to go back. I mean, for me, Hong Kong will remain a key city in Asia, but uh, um, it, it changed completely because they used to be the only one with uh, Singapore, which was a bit sleepy. And uh, sorry for my Singaporean friends and woke up in an amazing way because Singapore became one of the coolest place in the world, in my opinion. Uh, but during the, the beginning of Hong Kong booming for watches, Singapore was a little bit in the shade. And of course, in China, same Shanghai, Beijing. Uh, first time I went there, it was difficult to find a, a, a good hotel, a good restaurant. Now they are uh, the cities where you can find anything you want. And not only those two, but uh, maybe uh, 30, 40 cities in China. So between Chinese city that developed so quickly and other hubs in Asia that also uh, reinforced, Hong Kong uh, is not, not as good as before, but it has a lot of competition around. And that makes it an, a big, nice uh, uh, urban center where you can buy, uh, do shopping, whatever you want, but it's never going to be the same uh, like before. And, and, and during those years, as I said also, the shift of generation between the first generation of Chinese and the second generation of Chinese changed a lot. Because the young generation, they studied abroad. Uh, they were born already with some wealth. They studied abroad. They speak English, not like you, but maybe like me. And they can, they can, they can communicate. And they, they are more citizens of the world, you know, and their parents were really, really Chinese. So the whole landscape has changed. And I guess uh, that's, that's uh, I'm, I'm not saying Hong Kong will not be a great place. It still is and it will be, but among others. A brief moment to talk about footwear and our sponsor, eBay. Whether rare dead stock or the latest release, find the exact shoe you've been looking for. As the original sneaker marketplace, eBay is the spot to find that pair you must have. Shoes are also now part of eBay's latest buyer protection program. With eBay's authenticity guarantee, your sneakers are meticulously inspected by independent professional authenticators. A team of experienced sneaker authenticators verify the box, logo, stitching, and dozens of other inspection points. Each sneaker also receives an authenticity guarantee tag that includes a digital stamp of authenticity. And it also protects sellers with a verified return process. For sneaker sellers out there, eBay has eliminated selling fees on sneakers $100 plus, making it free to sell or flip your collection. Go to ebay.com sneakers today. eBay, the world's best destination for discovering great value and unique selection. It's just interesting to live in history, to see the world changing before us. And it's somehow there's solace in luxury watches, right? Because inside of an El Primero movement is a perfect world, but it's, it's, a, it's a microcosm and an imperfect world. And it's, we, we, we see sure. people coming to watches for that type of comfort, for that type of joy. I'm sure that you were surprised like I was during the pandemic to see so much collector activity buying watches as just feel-good items, right? Yes, it was incredible, you know. Uh, I mean, usually we, we, we always complain about this period of time. And I, I, of course, I have a lot of respect for people who suffered and went through very tough time. 
but I have to say there's been some learning as well. There's been some new things that were quite interesting. And uh, myself, uh, you know, I'm a market guy, which means based in Switzerland. Now I'm traveling a lot to see people, to meet people, to, to get in contact with the field. But I've never been meeting and talking to uh, so many clients uh, than the last 10 months because we had only this way to do. So it's been, it's been a very interesting way. And those people, you're right, they've been willing to acquire watches, to share about their passion, to ask about the new models. Uh, uh, and, and, and over the last four days, when we, since we launched the Chronomaster Sport, we've been, we've, been, we've been overloaded with calls and requests about that watch. So it shows that the interest is still very, very strong. Yeah. Con consider this, because I've done a number of interviews with collectors all over the world because I was yeah. trying to answer the question of, you know, what is watch activity like right now? And yes. I learned a lot of incredible things. One of the interesting things I learned is, is about 40% of our audience, which is probably representative of the watch consumer in general, did not change their watch buying behavior at all. Meaning the okay. pandemic didn't change a thing. Right. Some people actually went up yeah. in sales. Some people went down. But that's a, such a large percentage of people that were buying as much as normal. And consider yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. Most of watch appreciation already happened in a social distancing, friendly online way. People with extra time on their hands spent more time researching their hobby, which is watches. And we have to think about watches as a hobby. We don't use this word too much, but it's very true. For a collector and enthusiast is a hobbyist. And they like to study about their hobby. And when they want to feel good, they put money into their hobby by oftentimes buying a new watch. So all these people around the world have this extra time to read blog articles, to check out social media, to do price shopping, uh, to you know talk to some retailers in, in different ways. And again, a lot of people were buying online anyways. So not being able to go into stores didn't really matter at all. So the, the pandemic had far less of an effect on the people that actually like and buy watches on a regular basis than I think anyone would have expected. Yeah, it's true. It's true. I think it's, uh, you're totally right. And uh, I agree with you on using the word hobby. I mean, it's uh, for many, many people, it's, it's a hobby. Even people that might only buy a watch or two, you know, you don't really need a watch. So as long as you don't need, it's, it's kind of a hobby. Yeah. I used to meet these individuals that would go to like events and things like that. This was very early on. I remember in San Francisco, you remember the remember watch time used to have their in-person events that were like with Jeff Kingston and he would do his little present. Yeah, yeah, we've of all been course. to these things. And I remember there was these there, there was these guys that were there and they would always wear like something basic, you know, like a like a nice mechanical Seiko or something like that. They would carry the magazines with them and they were into watches. They would they were they were hoping one day to afford some of the nicer stuff, but they liked the friendship. They like hanging out. It was a social experience for them as much as it was like a style thing. And I think that when you sort of live and breathe the watch industry, you know, when you go home, you want to think about something else. It's so easy for many of the executives to to sort of forget that it's it's a leisure pursuit for many people. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, and you mentioned these events, and it's totally right. Jeff find always the right way. And I remember I was among the I, I was probably among the very first brand to go with him in in those years in New York, in San Francisco, in a few other cities. And he managed to get people that really had passion for watches and not always the biggest collectors, you know. But these people they tend to if they go to a a luxury brand shop. They tend to be like, okay, which watch do you have? I have a Seiko. Okay, uh, don't make me lose my time, you know, and, <laughs> and the, which is which is very unpleasant, and I hate this kind of thing. But uh, when they came to this event, you 
you spend time with them talking about watches. And you're right, maybe they can't afford your brand now, but they might in the future. And that's also how you, you, you build a brand in the long term. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's super important, those kind of platforms, yeah? Yeah, so I just think it's, it's so fantastic because what, what you learn is that people want to buy stories. And the better you are at storytelling, the more buyers you have. And that's really what it comes down to. We always look at Rolex, who, of course, is, is very, very important. I think it's actually worth mentioning, you know, that the person who had the job before you is now the CEO of Rolex, right? That's, that's, yes, that's kind of a right. big deal. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Rolex is the most storied brand that spends the most money telling stories. And, and Zenith has a lot of cool stories as well. And one of the things you, you have today, of course, is brand, you know, ambassadors and interesting partnerships and stuff like that. How is the watch industry right now at telling stories? And where are they going to develop in the next couple of years? Because I think they're realizing just how crucial it is to be a good storyteller. I think it's it's really true. And what is more important than anything for me is authenticity. Why? Because uh, we often thought that people, okay, uh, because in the year, probably early 2000, a lot of brands started, even some, some earlier, like Omega and other brands, but many brands went, for example, for celebrity endorsement. And it was a very quick way to leverage and to get more awareness, more desirability, uh, because XYZ superstar was wearing your brand. And I think it's, it, it, it worked very well. But over the years, people get educated, people get smarter, people think behind the scenes. And, and now, uh, younger generation, they are um, very much careful on why and how, and is it meaningful or not. And I think that's a very important aspect to keep in mind um, uh, when, you, when you do this kind of thing, because you need to show that there is authenticity. Uh, at Zenit, we love that. And it's, it's key for me because you buy something you don't need. You buy something expensive. You need to understand what you're buying. That's also the big difference uh, with the new generation that they really get in details. They want to understand what they buy. Uh, and you know, uh, celebrity endorsement for me, you have to make sure that this, this person is in line with your values. Uh, and it's not only it's not only to show the watch on the picture. I think people are done with this, and it's not it's not really relevant anymore in terms of uh, marketing strategies. It's like advertising, advertising from the seventies, from the eighties, advertising uh, now. Marketing then came. It, it, it's it, we had to adapt to the world and to the crowd. And now I believe this uh, celebrity endorsement is 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 a great tool still, of course, but you need to be careful with at Zenit. We don't always go for the biggest name, but we go for people that are very much in line with our uh, Time to Reach Your Star brand philosophy. And uh, we just announced the partnership with uh, Aaron Rodgers in the US. Congratulations. And, uh, you know, I, yes, I'm very happy about it. And I, had, I, I met quite a few people from the movie industry, singers, different people to help us raise this awareness because we need someone to help us. But uh, we, we decided to go with Aaron because when he told me his story, it couldn't be a better fit with where Zenit is coming from and what. what Zenit so, is what's doing. the story? I don't, I don't know this one. Well, he told me about his passion very simply. He told me how he started when he was young, that he was often told that he would never make it, uh, uh, and he and he was very resilient. He kept on going. It. He had a, he had his uh, how we say his star, you know, ahead of him, and he wanted to reach this this star, this objective to become a, a football player, and uh, he didn't even imagine he would become such a legend. But he had this vision. And he never gave up. He always went for it. 
despite difficulties and, and, and issues during his uh, early uh, years. So he's, he's been, and, and the way he talks about it, you mentioned storytelling, you know, that's exactly yeah. it. I mean, I don't need him to only come at an event and do like this, but I need <laughs> him to be on stage or to be in a video like we are today and to simply tell us his true story. That's no, it. it's, it's true. It used to be that a pretty face that would look good on an ad was all you needed. Yeah. Now you need to have like a real personality connection. Someone that when they open their mouth, you're like, yeah, I want them to be wearing my product. That's it. Yeah, that's exactly it. And, and, and so we, we work this way. And um, I mean, it's, uh, it's, been, it's, been, it's been very well for us. So I'm happy about this new direction. So these, these ambassadors, they probably all want you know, to design watches or have a, have a watch themed after them. What's the polite way of saying to them, not yet, hold on, let's see how good of an ambassador you are before you get your own watch? Alors, usually, uh, it depends also on, on, on quite a few things. But I would say, first, I like to, uh, to see how this person is going to be really uh, embracing this role, you know, in a, in a good way, meaning those values that we discussed, the fit that I mentioned, is it the real one or was it just, you know, to get the deal done? And uh, I think we need to date for a little while first and then we'll see what happened. Uh, uh, and it's very important. Usually people understand and they also want to be sure that the fit is good. The fit is good with the brand. The fit is good with myself and the team because it's a lot about people as well. And, uh, and once we, we do that, you know, uh, uh, we might, uh, we might have, a, have, a children, have children together. We might make watches together. But at the beginning, we need to see if, we really, if it really works well. And usually people understand well. But of course, with Aaron, we've been talking about quite a few things and there will be projects in the, in the future because he loves watches. And that's also something I like to test, you know, authenticity and fit with our, um, our image, our values. And of course, I mean, are you interested in watches? Because there is nothing worse. And you see it some, sometimes, not only for watch industry, but celebrities that really don't really have no interest, you know, in a specific uh, industry or business. It's, it's just that much more valuable when they like the product that you make. Otherwise, it's just very difficult. That's it. That's exactly it. And again, Zenit, we are... 200% on this authenticity aspect. 100% of, of our watches, they have a Zenit movement. We were the very first brand to open up our manufacturer to public visits. We have nothing to hide. You know, Switzerland, uh, between the, the banking and the watchmaking, we like to keep secrets. And sometimes we like to keep closed doors. Uh, Zenit is not like that. I mean, we open up, we show exactly what we are because we know it's true and, 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 and full of substance and content. Well, so hold so, on there. So, that, that's something worth mentioning because if you go to the Zenith Watches website, you'll see a section there that basically invites you to have a tour of the manufacturer. Yeah, and yeah. you talk about it so standardly, but that's not true. You, you don't go into Rolex. You know, uh, Patek Philippe is not going to invite you inside. Pretty much every other watch manufacturer requires an invitation to go there, which, you know, it's not, it's not, it's uncommon. It's considered a privilege. And at Zenith, you have this desire to want to have people come in. How'd that tradition get started and who keeps it up? It started, um, I would say nine, eight, nine months before I came on board, we started to discuss um, about this. Exactly. it. saying it's always difficult. People complain about, I cannot visit XYZ manufacturer or, um, I've been visiting quite a few, and I have to say, when I'm kept behind glass, I hate it. 
a watch brand, you want to go inside, you want to speak to um, the watchmakers, you want to touch things, and you want to have an experience. Otherwise, I'm, I'm, otherwise, I'm watching a movie on, on watchmaking. Let's and not forget, it my... it's the best drug to get you to want to buy a watch. Those are very, true. very impactful true. experiences. I and, mean, and, and that's true. So we decided, we decided to open up the doors. It was also following a discussion I had with the tourism, um, the tourism board of uh, Neuchâtel, and they were they came to Zenith. They say you are the brand uh, with this uh, watchmaking image, real manufacturer, blah blah blah. Can we do something together? Can you be part of a tour to discover the region? And I said, of course we can, and and that's how we started to discuss to to make public visits every Friday. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. okay. So let's go back a little bit. Because looking at your career, I mean, you are a watch industry career person. Uh, as far as I can tell, pretty much all the major jobs you've ever had have been in the watch industry, and, and it probably doesn't hurt that you're Swiss. But how does someone get into that? I think there's a romance for many people who are enthusiasts to potentially get into the watch industry. And what I find is so interesting, so many of them end up going what I call this entrepreneur route of like, you know, mm -hmm. starting their own brand or something like that. I was curious, I was like, why is this happening? Then I realized... They can't get into any of the existing brands. If existing brands would only, you know, hire more enthusiasts, there wouldn't be as many as much competition, right? How does someone get into the watch industry? Well, you're right. It's a good point, and I'm actually fighting against this uh, kind of closed doors uh, uh, world of the watchmaking industry because it's 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 very difficult to get in. Either you were born in, you started your career in it, and you have the the, the stamp uh, watch uh, watchmaking industry. Otherwise, it's difficult, which in my opinion, it's totally wrong because we tend to be, if you only hire people from the watch industry, we all have the same reactions. We all have the same network. We all have the same way to approach issues or, or things to develop. And that's actually quite wrong. And uh, when I was in, in Asia, I had to develop our retail expertise. And um, I wasn't originally a retail guy. So I, th I said, okay, I know I've, I've done boutiques. I know how it goes, but I need a real expert. And I told my boss at that time that I want to hire from someone from the fashion industry. And he told me, no way. She doesn't know anything about uh, watches. I said, okay, she's going to learn, but she's going to bring us a new perspective, a new perspective, a new knowledge that we don't have in our company today. And uh, I had to fight quite hard. And at the end, he said, okay, this is your responsibility. Um, you, you, you decide and I hired her and it's been a success because we all learn, including myself. So I think it's, it's, it's a bit of a bad side of the watch industry to be too close. I would, I would personally open up a lot to people coming from different, um, horizons. Now I can tell you're a fighter mainly because you use the word fighting so many times and I'm a fighter like I you. I, I, I know what it's like. What, what comes easy in the watch industry? So many things are a fight. I agree. I feel it as well. And in a lot of ways, more than you. But what, what comes easy? What is easy to do? What does the watch industry just slide into without too much pressure? <laughs> That's a good question. What is easy? After 2020, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I would say um, for me is... For maybe it's for me, maybe it's for the industry. I don't, I don't know, but I still believe that it's easy to enjoy your job in the watch industry. This for sure, because there is this very special, and you know it, very special atmosphere, very special mood. And uh, even today, I'm here behind my screen, which has nothing to do with our uh, shows in Basel or Geneva. Uh, but still, you enjoy it because you talk about products that are generating um, a real passion, a real enthusiasm. 
And honestly, uh, uh, the technicians here asked me this morning when we had coffee, uh, how, how can you keep this energy from early morning to late at night? But I said, you know, because I love what I'm doing. And, and it's always the same. If you have to wake up to go to a job that you don't really enjoy, it's really, really difficult. And I, I, I have a lot of respect for people that have to do that because it's tough. It's not my thing. I mean, when I wake up, I'm always excited to go and to work on, on watches. So what would be easy, I would say, is, is getting passionate. Some people were born with this. Some people received a watch when they were uh, eight years old from their grandfather and they, they, they love it and they became addicted. Some people, they learn on a job. That's my case. I, I, I really got the passion. I got this virus. Uh, if I may say, in today's world, I shouldn't use this one, but <laughs> I, I, I got the, the addiction on watches uh, when I was uh, working on, the, on my first job. But once you get it, you really enjoy. And that's, that's the easy part of our uh, industry, to be honest. We, are, we have sexy product in our hands. We have something uh, really emotional. And, and so many people, at least that I've come into contact with, are kind of jealous of that, right? Even if their jobs require less travel and less hours, the ultimate product of what they do is kind of boring, right? And with watches, I mean, these are things that the most powerful people in the world use as toys. They've got to be cool, right? You are, yeah, 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 yeah. You are really, really right. One of my colleagues that joined me in the adventure of Zenit, I actually hired him in 2001 to work in the Vacheron Constantin boutique in Geneva. And he was coming from the banking world. And uh, uh, I, I never forgot this story because... He, he's a great guy. And uh, when he came to me, he said, I want to be a sales guy on the floor in your boutique because this is where we learn about watches. I said, yeah, but you're coming from banking. I mean, what's your background related to watches first? And then, you know, I'm not going to be able to pay you what banks are paying you today. And he told me one thing. He said, you know, I'm, I'm, I, uh, nothing to do again, not, nothing against my friends uh, from banking industry. Uh, but that guy, he told me, I'm bored because I'm looking at graphs and numbers and, and reports and I love watches. So I just want to work within this field uh, to, 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 to be in line with my passion. And he left banking and he's still now after all those years uh, we work together. You know, this is exactly what you said. I mean, you have to love what you're doing and it's, you're so much better, so much better. So speaking of love what you're doing, you got to see all the new watches. I haven't, I don't know when I will. I want you to tell me which of the new products you think I'd like the most. Oh, la la, that's a good um, that's a good question. I knowing you, you will certainly enjoy the approach we have on the Chronomaster Sport, which is really completing and filling up uh, kind of a gap that we had in the Chronomaster um, approach. Uh, it's also a tribute to the El Primero. It's a, it's an amazing, casual, easy to wear watch that we are launching. And, and honestly, we got reactions like never before. So I'm sure you would appreciate this. But, um, uh, but I believe your pick would be the uh, A385. Uh, you know, uh, this, um, this watch that we relaunched, which was initially uh, created in 1970, 1971. And that has this, gra this uh, gradient dial, yeah, which was cool. actually the very first degradé, we say in French, uh, dial color. Before that, all the dials were full color. And I think it's it's such an iconic watch that I believe, I might be wrong, but I believe that would be your pick. Okay. I look forward to checking it out sometime. Hopefully we'll, we'll, we'll get one over soon. 2020 is a year that you're probably sick of talking about. I am as well. But one thing that I'm not sick of thinking about is how much I miss traveling. 
Um, how have you realized, because I'm sure you've traveled less, even though I know you're still traveling, but at what point did you realize in 2020 just how important travel was, not only to your job, but to your industry? Alors, uh, immediately, to be honest, because I value traveling and meeting people and being on the field. Again, probably from my, from my years living abroad, I still believe that if I don't travel, I'm going to lose ground. I'm going to lose contact with the, with the real markets. And um, my last trip was actually in the U.S. I launched the Defender, um, the Land Rover Defender Limited Edition watch in, uh, in New York City on mid-March. Then I came back and we started the lockdown. And since that day, I only went once to Paris, you know, so it's, uh, it's, it's no traveling. It never happened in my whole life. And, and actually next, yeah. next week I'm going to Dubai. So that's my, that's super. Exotic. Oh, congratulations. I, I, do you, are you afraid that you're like rusty? Cause you know, when we travel so much, you know, you got to kind of like remember routine yeah. and put up with certain things. Are you afraid that you're going to forget like what to do at the airport? I sort of for, have that fear myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are quite right. I mean, everything was so automatic for me that, uh, I, I'll make sure I have my passport and uh, my uh, <laughs> my uh, COVID nineteen test uh, negative, if possible. Otherwise, I cannot take off. But uh, no, I, um, I think habits come back soon because uh, come back rapidly because I, I, I've been traveling so much. But uh, but I'm I'm excited. You know, I'm very excited, like uh, like a kid before Christmas because I've been missing it. And I can't wait. And uh, when we plan to do this LVMH Watch Week, I realized that the only place where I could go physically today without too many troubles was Dubai. So I, I told my, my team there, okay, uh, you know what? Wait, wait for me. I'm coming next week and we, we'll do it physically. So, so that's, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. And about a year ago, you were here in Los Angeles and we were able to dine together and have some very good sushi. And you had just come back from Dubai and you were very, very excited because you had the first sort of LVMH watch show there. Um, and it's sort of funny how it's all it's all coming full circle. And now the the engine of our physical movement looks like it's starting again slowly. I, I don't want to be too hopeful, but I really feel like the the light at the end of the tunnel is a little bit brighter now. No, you are right. And um, I'm personally an, an optimistic uh, character. So I believe it's a uh, we have the, the, the toughest, the toughest time is behind us. You know, first of all, one year we were all taken by surprise. We all believed that it was kind of a virus in China that might not spread around. So we were sorry for our Chinese friend, but, and suddenly we realized it was everywhere. Yeah. Um, so we were taken by surprise. Now we are more ready. We learned how to live with this thing. We wear a mask. We wash our hands, uh, 35 times per day. I mean, we know more or less. <laughs> We know more or less how to act within this new norm, new new world, uh, which we hope is not going to last too long. And of course, the vaccination is here, you know. And uh, I, I believe it's uh, we have to move as fast as possible and trust uh, our medical teams to to provide this vaccination that will definitely help to save people, to save people's lives, and and to make sure that at some point we get to normal. Everyone I know, you know, here in LA, we're just waiting in line for our turn. I mean, I think that's just what it is. We're gonna wait for the authorities to sort things out and and when we, when it's our turn take it and just and just move forward really really fast. Okay, final question. And you are the head of a luxury brand and in a lot of ways this is like playing chess because with watches you have to make investments that translate into behavior a little bit down the road like when you make 
a new watch, it takes a few years. When you make an investment in, into a, a region, it takes a few years or months at least before there's any activity. Right now, you have to make some of those decisions. You have to play the master chess player and put your cards and your and your and your pieces on some places in some areas. What what are you betting on on happening first? What markets do you think are going to rebound? What types of trends are you putting your money on? Um, give us a little bit of what you think is going to happen in the next eighteen months. If you're wrong, we all could be wrong. But I'm just curious what what you're thinking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, I think um, one important thing is 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 the brand. Before the markets, we know what we want to do with the brand. And even this crazy year that we just went through uh, basically pushed us to be more. Agile, flexible, creative, uh, dynamic, which we have been intensively during the whole year to keep to keep the momentum on the brand, and that's important. But it doesn't change the long-term strategy at all, and that's been a question I've had. You know, we know where we're going, we know what we want to do with the brand, and this is super clear. So the roadmap won't change. In terms of markets, I would say uh, we have three main markets on which we will invest the most over the coming years. Uh, of course, Japan historically is a key market for Zenit. We historically have been so strong there because the awareness of the brand, but also the knowledge on the El Primero movement and what it's all about is quite big in Japan. So people respect it a lot and they love the El Primero movement. So Japan, we need to continue. It's a very long-term process. We continue to, to feed the market the right way to get to to meet the people the right way. And, and, and it's a growing market that's continuing. Then we have China. Of course, in the watch industry, China is huge. And uh, we used to be not at the right level. And we've been catching up over the last few years. And now we're finally starting to get um, to a good size and good awareness in China. But the road is long. And China, because of its demographics, because of its um, uh, uh, love for beautiful watches, they, they really have a watch culture there. We have to, to realize that. Uh, that anyway, it's going to be a key growth engine. Nobody can say, I don't care about China. I mean, it's important. Not only China, because that's dangerous, but being strong in China is necessary. So for sure. And then, of course, the USA, and I'm not saying this because I'm talking to you today. I'm <laughs> saying this because, and not also because I was born, uh, my, my son was born, sorry, in America, and I live there, and I love this country, but because there is also something very strong to develop in America about Zenith. Uh, the, the, the brand is, is for me a very, very good brand for, for, for the American culture. And I believe that we started late because we have no right to be present on the market. But now we're getting huge, huge, huge buzz uh, in America for the last, I would say, a couple of years or so since the, the, the value of the brand in the auction uh, started to take off since uh, uh, last October, November, December, for example, we double our sellout numbers in, in the U.S., you know, in the middle of the pandemic. So we have a lot of good signs. Uh, uh, and this week is another example because it's, it's in the U.S. that we got a huge numbers also of um, orders for the Chronomaster Sport. So we, we, feel, we feel something is cooking, something is going on. So that would be the three key markets. But of course, then you have a few locations. I mean, uh, uh, Middle East, we have a couple of countries in which we are uh, growing fast. Russia, the brand is very well known in Russia. So yeah. we have a, a good a good ground, uh, but we need to grow. Uh, Europe, I hope Europe will recover, but I think it's going to take a bit longer, uh, especially in terms of travel retail. And without travel retail in Europe, it's it's a bit complicated. So it might take a bit more time. That, so that's that's where we're heading. 
Very good. I'm glad to hear it. And thank you so much for taking the time to spend with me on the Superlative Podcast. Everyone, this has been Julian Tornari, CEO of Zenith Watches. Check out their website, zenithwatches.com. Julian, once again, thank you. And I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Ariel. Uh, Anytime I'm in uh, LA, I'll let you know. With pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Superlative Podcast. Support the show by subscribing and rating it on your preferred podcast platform. For questions, comments, and ideas, please email the show at superlative at blog2watch.com. For the latest in watch news, reviews, and culture, visit blog2watch.com. Thank you for listening to the Believe Podcast Network. Do you believe? 